Hi everyone, welcome back to The Anthrophiles. Um, Before I introduce the episode, I want to include a content warning. Um, We will be discussing heavy topics that include mental, physical, and sexual abuse against indigenous children, childhood death, and cultural genocide. If you do not want to hear about these topics, please turn off this episode and we'll catch up with you on the next episode of The Anthrophiles. So in this episode, we'll be talking about the boarding schools created by white colonists for Native American children to learn white American culture, Christianity, and Christian values. These schools reached their highest capacities between the 1890s and the 1930s, but operated into the 1960s. These boarding schools were breeding grounds for disease, mental illness, and the total annihilation of culture and the death of thousands of children. Although information about the boarding schools has always been available to the public, it is not a topic that is generally widely discussed in the U.S., especially in schools. However, after the discovery of unmarked graves at two Canadian schools, the Kamloops Indian Residential School in late May of 2021 and at the Maryville Indian Residential School in June of 2021, there's been a public outcry, especially by the Indigenous communities closely affected by them, for the government and these institutions to recognize the incredible wrongdoings that were committed against so many Indigenous communities and children. So hi, I'm Emily. I'm Katrina. I'm Sarah. And welcome back to The Anthrophiles. I chose this topic for our second episode of the season and to continue our discussion of Indigenous indigenous topics because I think that it really accentuates the horrors that Indigenous peoples have gone through in the not-so-distant past. Past. I also think because this topic has only recently been somewhat widely discussed that it's important to research it and talk about it. However, I do want to make it very clear that as a white person, I will never fully understand the effects that these schools had and continue to have on indigenous communities. All I can do is research these topics as thoroughly as possible and be mindful that much of the information available is from white sources, so they are likely biased and not fully representative representative of the experiences felt by the indigenous communities. With that in mind, I also want to remind listeners that this episode is coming from a white source. However, I have tried my best in my research to be mindful of the sources I have been gathering information from. So, had either of you learned about these boarding schools um, or have you heard of them before, um, before the information about Canada came out? Um, I definitely, I, I have a vague memory of learning very briefly about um, how a lot of colonists and Europeans tried to get indigenous people to assimilate to their culture when they um, like invaded America, but I didn't know like how um, involved some of the boarding schools were. So I feel like I've mentioned this before, but if not, I've taken a class on Native American history um, here at Quinnipiac, and it was a great class, and we read a lot of different books, and one of them was, I think, a memoir um, about an experience at a boarding school. So I know a little bit about it, but mm-hmm. I'm ready to learn more. <laughs> yeah, I had also like definitely learned about like forced assimilation in schools, but I didn't know that they were specifically built for this reason. So that was something I learned from researching this topic. So I want to start our discussion by giving some context of what was happening in the U.S. at the time. So the 1800s were marked by a constant push for white settlers, or constant push by white settlers for indigenous peoples to forfeit their land. 
On March 3, 1819, the Indian Civilization Act Fund was passed. Um, the intended purpose of this act was to civilize indigenous peoples through the erasure of their culture, traditions, and customs. Um, and it also worked to provide education in reading, writing, and arithmetic in an effort to assimilate the children into the lower strata of American society. And the goal was to create like Christian farmers and laborers. Then in 1851, the Indian Appropriations Act was passed, which essentially created the reservation system, and it prohibited indigenous people to leave the reservation without permission. Um, so at this point, more than ever, the government was looking for ways to solve what they called the Indian problem. Uh, Carl Schurz, the Secretary of the Interior in the late 1800s, argued that while it may cost upwards of a million dollars to kill a Native American in battle, it only costs a couple thousand to educate one of their children. Additionally, General Richard H. Pratt, founder of the Carlisle Indian Industrial School, stated that he partially agreed with other Army General Philip Sheridan's statement that, quote, the only good Indian is a dead Indian. Pratt said that, quote, in a sense I agree with this sentiment, but only in this, that all the Indian there is in the race should be dead. Kill the Indian in him and save the man. So I thought this would be a good place to bring up the idea of white saviorism. I think it's plain to see here that at least part of the thinking behind the boarding schools and rationalization for opening them is due to the parties involved thinking that being white and Christian is superior. So I wanted to know if when you both were researching your episodes, did you notice any of this and are there any other instances of white saviorism that you can think of throughout history? Um, I, when I was researching mine, um, I think I'm focusing on, I focused my episode on you know the Quinnipiac people um, and then also like their relations with white colonists and I think that early on in um, that relationship it it was it was more just like just disdain for each other so there wasn't as much like let me try to help these people but in terms of white saviorism today I mean you still see it all the time with stuff like mission trips to to like places outside of the U.S. where like churches or school groups will go and they're like we're helping like you know this these children in this country when it's like you're you're really not you're just going in there and you like you're taking pictures with the kids and stuff like that right and you didn't ask them what kind of help if any that they wanted yeah yeah um in my episode I didn't find much of that just because it's a little bit different but um I think this is you know been a reoccurring theme throughout history because of the way that we created hierarchies of people through race and the idea that we can you know culture other people into becoming more white and having white values and therefore they'll be better because of it because in the end these people see white as superior and as the pinnacle of civilization. So civilizing anyone that's not white has been the mission throughout history and um, those values have continued to be at the top of the social hierarchy. It's, it's terrible to think about because of how much beautiful diversity we have in the world um, and it makes me sad that there's been such an effort to get rid of that. Right. So 
These things and many other actions taken against indigenous people by the government and by the Catholic Church led to the eventual opening of the boarding schools. So the federal government was responsible for opening 25 off-reservation boarding schools, but more than 300 opened between the late 1800s and the 1960s by various religious organizations with support from the government. Um, so now I want to talk a little bit about the beginnings of the boarding schools and how they really got started. So initially, the U.S. allowed schools to open near the communities that they served. Um, this allowed the children to go back home to the reservations and maintain their language and culture. However, assimilationists argued against this for the same reason. Um, this led to the rise of off-reservation boarding schools, and the first um, off-reservation school was the Carlisle Indian Industrial School, which opened its doors on October 6, 1879. Um, in 1891, a compulsory attendance law specifically aimed at indigenous peoples was passed, which made it mandatory for all American Indian children to attend school. So between the 1890s and the 1930s, attendance at off-reservation schools reached its peak. And parents who refused to send their children had rations, money, and other goods withheld from them. Um, Denise K. Lajamodier, a citizen of the Turtle Mountain Band of the Chippewa Indians and a retired associate professor at North Dakota State University, wrote, The boarding school, whether on or off-reservation, became the institutional manifestation of the government's determination to completely restructure the Indians' minds and personalities. Boarding schools were established for the sole purpose of severing the Indian child's physical, cultural, and spiritual connection to his or her tribe. And this quote can be found in the book Indigenous People's Access to Justice, Including Truth and Reconciliation Processes, which is a collection of chapters written by different authors. And then we'll be talking more about um, her chapter later in this episode. Um, now I want to talk more specifically about the Carlisle Indian Industrial School. It was founded by General Richard H. Pratt in 1879, and it was the first of its kind, so the first off-reservation school. Um, I read that his philosophy of teaching Native American children, uh, which was kill the Indian, save the man, came from his experiences as a jailer for indigenous prisoners of war. And while at the POW camp, Pratt was able to convert 12 people to Christianity and then later used these people to help recruit students for what would be the first class to enter the Carlisle School. Um, Pratt's career in the military greatly impacted the structure of the school. It was designed to be strictly organized when students were broken up into regiments, units, and battalions. And older students were forced to deliver punishment to their subordinate students if they violated any of the school rules. Um, in addition to having control over the children and using the school as a way to eradicate their culture, Pratt also stated that having the children of important Native American community members was a good way to ensure more cooperation between them and the government. Um, I think this is a good point to pause and think about just how calculated the boarding schools were for the, the U.S. government. It truly was a time of like complete cultural genocide, and it does not get discussed as much as it should. Um, what are some of your thoughts about this, and are there any other instances of important topics like this getting kind of swept under the rug by the U.S. that you can think of? I mean, as you were reading that, I was just thinking to myself, like, it, it was so organized and well thought out and calculated, which is disturbing and so upsetting to think about because it wasn't just because it wasn't just like 
like these white people who hated these indigenous people and were just like reckless about it. Like there was there was a plan to eradicate their culture, which is so upsetting and devastating. And I mean, you see that all the time, especially when learning American history in in like schools today with stuff like, you know, slavery. Um, you don't talk about that enough. Definitely not. Indigenous people, we don't talk about enough and how we've completely eradicated their culture. Not completely. I'm sorry. But how like, you know, an effort has been made to eradicate their culture. And we, it's just not talked about. And it should be because if you don't talk about the dark parts of history, then it's going to get repeated and we see it getting repeated. Right. I was just thinking about how he has this military background and I was wondering if that maybe is why um, besides the fact that they were attempting to eradicate their ties to their culture, that they would cut their hair and, and things like that. Um, I don't know when that started, when um, military men had specific haircuts and hairstyles, but I wonder if that had any part to do with that. Um, and I think it's, it's so awful that children are so moldable and that their culture is so unique and different to the white colonial culture at the time that they were getting rid of the beautiful things that I've seen, you know, today, um, songs and, and their languages and their names were changed and their hairstyles and their clothes and everything taken away from them. Um, it's just, it's so sad to me. <laughs> yeah, it is. So now let's talk more broadly about the things that occurred across many of the boarding schools. And we'll actually touch on a lot of the things you just mentioned, Katrina. Mm -hmm. So to start, it's important to talk about how the children actually got to the schools in the first place. Um, although some left willingly, a vast majority were coerced, removed forcibly, and even kidnapped. Um, many were transported by train to schools that were a long distance from their homes, so there was no possibility for them to go back. And upon arrival, the children had their possessions taken from them and their hair was cut. Um, they were given uniforms to wear, new Anglo-American names, and were often prohibited from speaking their native languages, practicing traditions, and expressing their culture in any form. Um, this often caused many of the children to lose the memories of their culture and language, which resulted in the widespread of culture loss of indigenous groups. Um, and today, many affected by this are still trying to reclaim their culture and relearn their languages. Um, children who strayed from the boarding school rules were often met with harsh punishments. In an article published on a website called um, boardingschoolhealing.org, it is stated that, quote, they suffered physical, sexual, and cultural they suffered physical, sexual, cultural, and spiritual abuse and neglect and experienced treatment that in many cases constituted torture for speaking their native languages. Jacqueline Frost, a former student at the Ute Vocational School located in Colorado, recalls how her aunt, who became a matron of the school that strictly enforced the rules, would beat her with the stick part of brooms and mops, belts, hangers, shoes, and wire. Another account of what went on at these schools comes from a man named Norman Lopez, who was a student at the same school, age six. He told the New York Times that upon arriving to the school, his cedar flute that he had carved with his grandfather was taken from him, smashed to pieces, and thrown away. He also reported that he remembers being made to sit in a quarter, corner for multiple hours as punishment, and when he tried to get up, a teacher threw him against a wall and then again to the ground. 
What's even more devastating about this is that he told the New York Times that he thought that the punishment like this was a normal part of school and he didn't think of it as abusive at the time. Of these two experiences, Lopez recalls that having his flute destroyed was worse than the physical punishment he received. He stated that after the incident, he knew that there was a clear need to comply while also resisting. And today, Lopez has returned to the flute and even has a home studio where he carves flutes at the Ute Reservation in Tawak, Colorado. So those were only two accounts of the acts committed at the boarding schools, and there's countless of other stories just like them. Um, before we move on, though, I want to talk about Norman Lopez's story and how he thought that the abuse he was receiving was a normal part of school. So what are, your, some, what are some of your thoughts about this, and what to you does it say about these schools? Um, I think Katrina touched on it a little bit before about how children are so moldable, and like if they don't know any better, then they think this is how normal treatment goes. And it's just, I think the, the, like the schools that you're talking about are so sad, and the whole cultural genocide of indigenous people or the attempt of it is so upsetting but I think what makes this even worse is that it's children mm -hmm. it's kids that are so innocent and like haven't done anything to just not that anyone deserves anything to do this but like children are the most innocent among us and they're being treated this way for no reason right it's just it's kind of heartbreaking to see that because his story really exemplifies how abuse like this was so commonplace that you know seeing it all the time just felt normal yeah and it's just it's just heartbreaking too how he said that the the loss of the flute was more upsetting mm -hmm. to him than the actual physical abuse yeah I was gonna say that thing that that resonated the most with me I thought that was really profound that that he recognized that you know destroying something that he had created with his grandfather that was so special to him was way worse than getting mm -hmm. pushed into a corner and thrown against a wall and that he believed that that was a normal part of school. Mm -hmm. I, I just, I can't imagine how um, I would have felt if that was a part of my elementary school experience. You know, we mm -hmm. grew up in, in schools, at least I did, I'm sure you guys did too, in, you know, suburbs where your teachers are so kind to you and there's snack time and there's reading rugs and there's just so much love and, and caring for children um, and you watch videos and you get to play with your friends at recess. I can't imagine what it's like having your things stolen from you and being ripped away from your family. Like we got to go home every day on a right. yellow school bus and, you know, they had to stay there and wear uniforms and endure an entirely different lifestyle than they probably imagined that they would have grown up in. Right, yeah. like elementary schools and schools in general are supposed to be a place of safety and learning and like kind of love like you said and just to see it completely flipped on its head is just shocking mm -hmm. yeah also just it's like because not only was their culture and their lifestyle ripped away from them so was their entire childhood mm -hmm. like they're never going to get that back right the fact that even what you just said about where school should be a place of education it's crazy to me that school for them was a place of of destroying their their mm -hmm. lifestyle and educating them in a completely wrong way. You know what I mean? Right. It's it's hard to even call it a school. Right. Yeah. Because in its essence, it really wasn't. No, not at all. So now let's talk about some of the other aspects of the schools. 
Um, we already talked about how the goal of the schools was to churn out low-class tr- Christian laborers. The boys were prepped for manual labor and farming while the girls were taught domestic work. Um, in order to do this, though, the schools would exploit the children for free work in order to keep the school running, and lack of funding for these schools played a big part in this. Um, to make matters worse, though, during the summer, children were often lent out against their will to white homes for free labor. So not only were they at school far away from home, but many were forced to stay away because of this program. Um, so they never had the opportunity to actually go back home. Um, boarding schools were also notoriously overcrowded. And due to this overcrowding, disease became commonplace. So many of the schools saw epidemics of tuberculosis, measles, pneumonia, mumps, and influenza. And as you can imagine, death became a common reality at many of the boarding schools. Um, the students who died were buried on property and often were buried before the school notified the family of their child's passing. Um, the schools would claim that the quick burial was due to disease, uh, disease concerns, but there is speculation that many of the deaths were due to abuse and a quick burial was a way to cover it up. At the Carlisle school, school alone, there were almost 200 graves of students who had died there. And over the past several, several years, however, there have been efforts to return the children to their respective tribes so that they can finally have a proper burial. However, in some cases, bringing the children home is proving to be uh, difficult. Members of the Northern Arapaho have been requesting that their children be returned to them. Archaeologists and researchers have worked to return the remains of three children, Little Chief, Horse, and Little Plume, to their surviving family members. Although Little Chief and Horse were recovered and returned, Little Plume was not. When archaeologists unearthed, unearthed his coffin, the bones of two others were discovered in his place. They determined that neither were Little Plume because the ages didn't match up. It is still unknown who these two, two other children are, and no one is sure where Little Plume could be. Um, I just want to take a second to kind of unpack what we just talked about. Um, I found this story particularly heartbreaking because not only did these children meet their deaths because of the Carlisle School, but there wasn't even enough respect for them to mark their graves correctly. What do you think about this and does the kind of the lack of respect seen here relate to your topics in any way? Yeah, I mean, I was just also thinking about while you were talking how I think we've talked about a few times before on this ep- on this podcast how um for indigenous communities like proper burial is so important um to their like religious and spiritual beliefs and the fact that like what like thousands of children were not able to receive the proper burial that their parents and family members would want them to have is devastating because i know every culture like it's important to Mm -hmm. practice proper burial practices but it's like very very like sacred in indigenous communities so that's heartbreaking to think about too and I mean, it's just the fact that, like, like they said they were sending back the body of the correct child, and then it was, like, two two bodies of different children instead. Mm-hmm. It's like they don't even care enough to 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 send back the right child, you know? They they sent back the right children, but when they were looking for the That's what I one, meant. I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah. So it's, but like, the, the people who buried them, like... Yeah. Yeah. Not right, the people that right, were actively like, trying to right. help and send it back, but yeah. Like, they didn't even care enough Mm -hmm. to, like, mark their burial correctly. Right. That was going to be one of my questions for you was, 
if their grapes were marked at all or in any shape or form, um, which is particularly heartbreaking, like you said, that they weren't and that they weren't able to be returned to their families. Um, but what you mentioned about if there was a lack of respect um, that we found in our research in our episodes, I think there is definitely in, in mind with missing and murdered indigenous women and how um, there's a lack of trying to find missing women specifically. And when they go missing, they're also not returned to their families. They're never found. So it's, it's really heartbreaking to see that this is a reoccurring theme. Right. So recently, the media has been talking more about the boarding schools and what went on in them. And part of this uptick in attention is due to the unmarked graveyards found at the Canadian boarding schools. Um, in May of this year, it was announced that using ground-penetrating ground radar, 215 unmarked burials of students were discovered at Kamloops Indian Residential School in British Columbia. And it was also reported that some of the children found were as young as three years old. Um, then, a month later, it was announced that 751 unmarked graves were discovered at the Maryville Indian Residential School in the Saskatchewan province of Canada. Cadmus Delorme, chief of the, Co the Coesis First Nation, and the one who made this announcement, made it clear that, and this is a quote, this is not a mass grave site, these are unmarked graves. And I believe that this distinction was made because it suggests that the deaths took place over time rather than hastily due to epidemics. Um, and the school's systematic way of covering them up became like commonplace and accepted. Um, I just wanna quickly explain a bit about the ground penetrating radar, which is exactly what it sounds like. Um, it is used as a non-destructive way to check for and identify, in this case, grave sites. The Institute of Prairie and Indigenous Archaeology, led by Dr. Keisha Supernant, is one of the institutions that has had a focus on using this remote sensing technology to service communities in, again, a non-destructive, cost-effective, and time-sensitive way in comparison to traditional archaeological excavation. Um, this discovery in Canada has led Deb Haland, the U.S. Secretary of the Interior and member of the Pueblo of Laguna, to announce a federal Indian boarding school initiative that will review the troubled legacy of federal boarding school policies. This initiative includes the inspection of the grounds around the boarding schools in hopes to uncover potential unmarked grave sites like the ones found in Canada. Haland is confident that unmarked graves will be found, but has stated that no one can know to what extent. Preston McBride, a boarding school researcher, estimates that there could be as many as 40,000 graves to be discovered in the U.S. Um, so what are your initial reactions to this number? And how do you think the boarding schools have kind of flown under the radar for so long? Um, I think like 40,000 is just like an unfathomable number. Like it's hard to even like picture that. Yeah. I mean, you can't, like, you can't even visualize it. Your, your mind can't even comprehend it. And it's so, I mean, I don't even know how many times I can use the word upsetting or, like, mm -hmm. devastating in this episode, but it is. And like you said, it, it does get pushed under the rug and swept under the rug. I didn't know about, you know, stuff like this until it started to come out um, with the news with the Canadian boarding schools. And it's like, why didn't I know about that? It's just as much as, like, part of U.S. history as the Boston Tea Party, you know? Like, 
there's no reason that we shouldn't be teaching this in schools in age-appropriate ways. I can't believe that that many children died at a school where they were trying to create, you know, laborers and people that they wanted to use in a way. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, I'm sure a lot of it happened because of disease as well, because they were so overcrowded. But it's just insane to me that there were so many deaths at a school, even though we know that the school was mm -hmm. not necessarily a school that, you know, in, in modern terms and in good terms, but um, that many graves at a boarding school is, is ridiculous. I agree. Um, so now let's talk about some of the effects the, these boarding schools had and still have on people today. First, I want to discuss the text American Indian Boarding Schools in the United States, A Brief History and Their Current Legacy by Denise K. Lajamodier, which is an excerpt from a larger book called Indigenous Peoples' Access to Justice, Including Truth and uh, Reconciliation Processes. In this chapter, Lajamodier reports on her study where she interviewed survivors about their experiences at the boarding schools to uncover like areas in their reports. She found that survivors most often reported in the areas of loss, abuse, unresolved grief, and they expressed ways of healing. In the area of loss, many felt the loss of identity, culture, language, ceremonies, and traditions. Many also reported low self-esteem because of the treatment they received at the schools. And they also reported that they had feelings of abandonment from their families and they felt out of place when they returned home. Mental, physical, and sexual abuse also took place in the schools. Survivors reported it in the form of harsh punishment, forced labor, which included working at the schools and being forced to work in the homes of white families, and malnourishment. They recall being forced to endure these abuses from both faculty and fellow students, in addition to being forced to watch them take place. Unresolved grief was another common area being reported. Um, many report maintaining silence about their experiences and, um, and their grief, so they don't talk about it. Um, and many have struggled with mental health, relationship issues, and alcoholism. And when discussing grief, many scholars bring up the terms historical trauma and intergenerational trauma. These terms reflect the idea that a trauma has collectively been experienced by a group of people with a like group identity and has continued to be passed down from generation to generation. Um, in her chapter, Laja Modier described many of those who returned home to their communities as being wounded human beings. They were denied the conditions needed for healthy growth and development, and the only physical touch many received was in the form of beatings and forced sexual contact with adults and older students who themselves were victims of abuse. Um, the children who were forced to stay at the schools year-round grew up in the sole company of other children and few adults who saw them as savages in need of being civilized. Laja Modier stated that, and this is a quote, the damage from boarding school abuse, loneliness, lack of love, and lack of parenting is being seen as a major factor in ills that plague tribes today, passing from one generation to the next and manifesting in high rates of poverty, substance abuse, domestic violence, depression, and suicide. Overall, the indigenous peoples who attended these schools endured countless human rights violations that they and their communities are still recovering from today. To heal, many of their survivors shared with Laja Modier that as an individual and as a community, 
They have returned to native spirituality, ceremonies, and language. The National Native American Boarding School Healing Coalition, which was formed in 2011, um, has a mission statement to, this, and this is directly from their website, to lead in the pursuit of understanding and addressing the ongoing trauma created by the U.S. Indian boarding school policy. The website also states that the NABS was created to develop and implement a national strategy that increases public awareness and cultivates healing for the profound trauma experienced by individuals, families, communities, American Indian and Alaska Native nations resulting from the U.S. adoption and in implementation of the boarding school policy of 1869. The coalition also highlights the need for education, advocacy, and healing. I think it's important to mention that today, in spite of the horrible acts committed against indigenous communities, they are resilient and many are thriving today. In an article written by Micker Richardson, the director of the National American India, Indian and Alaska Native Head Start Collaboration Office stated that, quote, we draw our strength from family and from deep cultural roots to our land and each other. Many Native people and families are committed to staying in our communities and helping our children thrive. The article states that Head Start programs are often at the center of ind Indigenous family life. They provide things like family support, parenting classes, and other services while respecting cultural beliefs surrounding how children grow and learn. The organization also specializes in language revitalization and is working on building up its services in it and in mental health and disability initiatives. So before I wrap up the episode, I want to talk a little bit about how it's common to see indigenous peoples and communities be talked about in the past tense, even though they are still still very much here today. Um, have you both noticed this while researching your topics? And what are some reasons why you think like this is happening? Yeah, definitely. I talked a little bit about that um, in my episode near the end of it. And um like I mean just with like you know like movies like The Last of the Mohicans right it's like they're not around anymore but there are so many there are like reservations and groups that are still totally going strong and preserving their culture which is amazing to think about because they're doing it despite like all the odds that have been put against them like literally all the cards have been stacked against them and they're still thriving which I think is is great right um I understand that you know we focused a lot on some darker topics which is important because they're not talked about as much but it's so important to highlight the fact that some of these communities are thriving and that the, their culture and learning about their culture is so important um, and yeah <laughs> <laughs> I agree I think um, as far as like you know talking about these topics in the past I feel like, you know, it's easy to say, well, if it's in the past, there's no way to change it. Um, so it's easier to ignore and not talk about if things are thought about that way. Um, and I just think that's another reason why it's just so important that, you know, we recognize when talking about these topics that, you know, we're not talking about people of the past. Like they still yeah. are here and thriving and like working on reclaiming their culture, language and customs. Absolutely. I think I remember I first like 
became aware of that concept in a like an archaeology class with Professor Giblin and she was talking about how like we talk about Native American communities in the past tense when really they're still around and I was like oh my gosh like that's that's so true when like the little that you do learn about them in school it's like well they did this and they like this was the group that they were you know kind of thing and you're like no but they're they're totally still around today and then you know by talking like that then you're just doing a disservice and you're erasing them kind of like in a way that's similar to what has been going on to them for hundreds of years it does feel like just a continuation of that cycle yeah like you know erasure of culture definitely um so lastly i just want to mention that we recently passed september 30th which has been named orange shirt day and is a day of recognition across the united states and canada to honor the indigenous children that were lost to the boarding schools And for more information on how to responsibly show your support for this day, you can visit orangeshirtday.org. So that's all the information I have for you today. But before I list my sources and end this episode, I want us to all take a moment of silence to think about what we have just discussed and how so many lives have been affected by it. We would like to give a special thanks to Professors Julia Giblin and Sarah Reedy for editing and supporting this episode. Music is Find Your Way, found by Emily from the YouTube Free Music Library. Cover art was made by Katrina using Canva. Also, special thanks to Rynette Chefu, our producer, Jacqueline Callanan, and Katrina for handling our social media, Emily and Sarah for editing, and David DeRoche and the QU Podcast Studio for producing this podcast and making it possible. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and find us on social media as The Anthrophiles on Instagram and Twitter. Thank you for listening and we hope you join us next time. For a full list of my sources for this episode, please check out the link in our bio of our Instagram.